From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, Standard Chartered tops Starling's BAS platform for green savings product. Paytm raises $1.1 billion from anchor investors in India's Blockbuster IPO. And Microsoft making a metaverse. Hmm. And it will have PowerPoint. All this and more in today's show. But before we start, we want to tell you a little bit more about something we're cooking up here at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost income ratios, which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. Banks need to adopt a cloud-first approach. When you consider all the benefits that cloud-based systems offer, it should be a no-brainer. Banks can work faster and smarter to deliver market-leading services at scale. Read more about moving to the cloud in our latest report in association with Encino. Just head to bit.ly forward slash cloud banking report. Welcome to episode 580 of Fintech Insider. My name is Guerra and I'm joined on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, uh, Ewan Silver, CTO at 11FS. What's up, Ewan? How you doing? Cool guy? I'm good, Guerra. It's good to good to see you after a long time and uh, first time on the news. Can you believe that? Excited to have you. Yeah, first time, you know, hopefully not the last. Uh, hopefully not the last of the two of us doing this together, so... Looking forward to, to all the bants. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> all right. Um, and of course, we're not alone. Uh, we're always joined by some very special guests making a welcome return. We have David Jarvis, the CEO and founder of Griffin. Welcome back to the show, David. Uh, can you give us a quick overview of, of what Griffin is uh, and what, what Griffin does, really? Uh, thank you. It's a delight to be back. Um, Griffin is a full stack embedded finance platform. So we are currently in the uh, final stages of preparing to formally submit a application for a banking license here in the UK. And uh, we enable companies that want to offer financial services products, whether they're regulated fintechs or unregulated companies to get those to market really quickly. That's awesome. Thank you. And making their FinTech Insider debut, uh, I'm really delighted to int- introduce and welcome Siddharth Ven Katarama Krishnan. Uh, so welcome, Sid, uh, Capital Markets Correspondent of the Financial Times. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm sure it's been a very busy news week. Uh, can you give us a brief overview of your role uh, and your area of focus at the FT? Yes, certainly. And thank you for having me. So I realized my, my job title has changed quite recently. So I'm now covering um, banking FinTech. Sorry, I should have so that, um, but my job, uh, broadly, I sort of tied to three beats. One is banking, retail banking in the UK. Um, so looking at things like results, but access to cash and transformations. Secondly, on fintech, which is obviously a vast area, but particularly around payments, buy now, pay later, um, and sort of the future of digital banking. And then thirdly, on crypto, but specifically stable coins and CBDCs. Cool. Really sinking your teeth into some cool stuff. That's exciting. All right. So, and with that, let's get into the news. So uh, let's start with a story that came from Finextra. So Standard Chartered taps Starling Bank's BAS platform for a green savings product. So Standard Chartered's innovation arm is working with Starling Bank for a digital platform that will help UK savers invest in green and sustainable projects. 
Launching next year, the Shoal platform will invite standard chartered customers to select from a short list of options such as renewable energy, clean water, and community development. Customers' money will be used exclusively to fund projects aligned with them and will receive regular updates on the project and a competitive rate of return, allegedly. Shoal is powered by Starlings Banking as a Service. Uh, the Challenger Bank's BAS offering. Uh, Standard Chartered says that by using Starlink's technology and APIs, it can focus on customer acquisition and service uh, and delivering a front-end app. So really staying embedded. Uh, so Shoal is funded through the SC Ventures, the innovation arm of the Standard Chartered Bank. So before we jump into discussion on this, let's first hear a little bit from one of the companies involved. Uh, so Carl Turnbull, head of banking services at Starling, told us a little bit more. So let's hear what he has to say. Uh, this is a uh, an amazing opportunity for us, actually. We've got a tried and tested product, which we've been processing in the UK with an existing partner and Standard Chartered approached us around 12 months ago with a view to launching a UK sustainable investment fund. Uh, they needed to have the ability to be able to onboard those underlying clients and move money from clients UK bank into that investment fund. Uh, and whilst in, in Asia, certainly when they launch, Standard Charter will be using their digital bank mocks, but in the UK they decided that uh, it wasn't their strategy to build a digital bank or acquire. It was uh, best to partner with a bank that had tried and tested this product already, uh, which helped accelerate them to the market. So we've been processing this for an existing partner uh, successfully for the last four years. Uh, for us, this is an amazing opportunity to work with uh, Standard Chartered, a great brand. Um, they're transitioning to be a greener company, so that's that's one of their key strategic goals, and we're delighted to be able to help with that. But we're using essentially the technology, it's business as usual for us, the technology that we use to power our 2.5 million retail clients. It's uh, a very similar onboarding experience that uh, an underlying Shoal UK client will go through. And essentially, we will onboard the client and we will offer those underlying current accounts, which are FSCS protected, financial services compensation scheme protected. And we will deal with the payment flow from the underlying client into the standard chartered investment fund, and then deal with the repatriation of those funds uh, upon maturity. So this is, this is a, as I say, fantastic opportunity to, to use tried and tested uh, products and, and payment flows. It's a, a great additional revenue stream for us, of course, but as I say, we're using the infrastructure that, that we already use to power the, the rest of our, our organization. So delighted to be to be working with Standard Chartered on this. That's great. So um, really great to see Starling's BAS offering uh, grow up and start to get out into the world. So David, I'm going to come to you as a BAS expert yourself. What do you make of this story? Yeah, so I think there are a couple things that are really interesting about this. Um, I will say that when the sort of first um, press release came out uh, and, and we didn't have, you know, Carl's uh, del delightful insights to share with us directly, it wasn't entirely clear, like, who was doing what uh, in the kind of relationship that was being established, because obviously Standard Chartered, like, is a, a banking group. They have all these regulatory permissions. They have technology infrastructure already in place. So there's the kind of typical question of like, well, why do they need a BAS partner, right? You know, most of the people who are looking for a BAS partner are looking for a BAS partner because they're not banks themselves, although they might be regulated. Um, and therefore, they, they really need someone who has the regulatory permissions to sort of bring to the table. So what's interesting about this is, you know, it's, it's more of a, a strategic opportunity for them to leverage more modern infrastructure, it sounds like, 
to be able to do things at scale. And, and we've seen stuff like this at, at Griffin, where we've talked to sort of more established banks that don't necessarily have the technology or operational infrastructure to do something at the speed that they would like to, um, and, and therefore are interested in working with a vast partner. The sort of setup for this is, is also kind of interesting. So, I mean, to me, uh, it, it sounds like there are kind of three things, or really, really two things, I guess, going on here. So one is, you know, the underlying onboarding of clients is really interesting. Um, although it sounds like these may be existing standard chartered clients um, who may be accessing other sort of investment products through standard chartered. Um, but then also the conceit of this being a, um, a savings account is, is also kind of interesting because it's uh, it, it, what it sounds to me like is that what Starling is providing is essentially like a um, almost a, a, like a temporary holding wallet because the objective is for things to go into this and then to go into these sort of like individual green project um, funding initiatives that, that sound like they're being managed then by, by Standard Chartered. And so the sort of scope for um, what Starling is actually doing and, and I mean, how long they're going to hold on to these funds is probably like fairly limited, but I can also appreciate that it's kind of the nexus around which um, Standard Charter can focus on what they seem to believe they, they do really well, which would be the sort of investment side of this. So in some ways, I think this is a really classic use case. What's interesting about it is um, that Standard Chartered like really could have built this all themselves and they've chosen not to. Yeah, I mean, so you and I'm going to come to you uh, about this. Like, so why, why, like, like David touched on a point about like the Standard Chartered could have built this. This is a large multinational bank. Like, they have the money, they have the resources. I'm sure. Like, but why go with a Bass and and why go with Starling specifically? What do you think? So I think um, you know, yeah, banks. A lot of banks, as David said, could could potentially do this. But the reality is, their infrastructure is probably not set up to do it quickly and efficiently. Um, I think. Why Starling in particular? So Starling from day one has actually had an underlying BAS capability. I know, I know, I know what Anne and the team were building. And Starling, as Carl kind of alluded to, is actually almost a, a customer facade sitting on top of their underlying BAS capability, and they've had that as a developer portal for for years. I think it's always, as I understand it, being one of Anne's primary objectives to build out this wholesale capability to be, have different, uh, different, almost front ends on top of this product. Uh, and Standard Chartered, uh, I think, is a great example of how you can leverage somebody who is tailor-made to building banking as a service products for the for the next generation. Uh, Starling can do it fit really efficiently, very low cost. You know, they have proven they're a reliable, secure bank. Uh, and um, I think, as David says, it's probably only a temporary holding wallet until they move it into other ESG funds. Uh, but actually, the reality is they are designed to do this in a modern way, whereas the big banks such as Standard Chartered and the other institutions just, just are not set up to do that from a governance perspective and other other matters. Yeah, so um, that, 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 that's uh, let's zoom out a little bit from the, the nitty-gritty tech stuff. Like, Sid, uh, COP26 just is, you know, I think it's still going on, but it seems to be like a like a South by Southwest or Apple event of, of like, environmental innovation or whatever everyone's just announcing their wooden cards or whatever's how all that's happening right now um how like, what are your thoughts on this i mean let's also consider the backdrop of the fact that greta thunberg uh, and other protesters were actually standing outside of sonic charter's offices in london literally like two weeks ago um protesting the bank and, and their involvement in oil what are your thoughts around this this whole move into like environmentalism and uh, like are you seeing this trend uh, a lot happen a lot wider Yes, certainly. I think even before COP, I know obviously a lot of businesses chose COP to release their news, which as somebody pointed out, maybe it's not the best time because it sort of gets drowned out in 
in the headlines of other things environmental. Um, I, I do think it is part of the, the, the international mood, certainly in fintech. Um, I think it is worth bearing in mind, though, that consumers are probably more um, savvy than we sometimes give them credit for. And I think that um, a lot of these things like, yeah, I said, sort of wooden cars or something that is entirely kind of superficial is likely to end up um, backfiring at some point. Um, I think even if, you know, some of the more complex aspects around ESG funds and sort of what actually is defined as a green bond and so on may not be um, figured out by consumers instantly. I think things which do look like window dressing are likely to, to go wrong. And, and if we look, I mean, sort of outside of fintech, the Dieselgate scandal and just thinking about the sort of economic impact that has as well as reputational, um, I think that ESG and green initiatives in particular um, are going to require a lot of careful handling or you're going to end up in a position where there's a lot of these things around and people are just dubious of all of them because some of them are, yeah. David, you, you have you have a thought? Yes, sorry, I, I can't resist. So um, wooden, wooden debit cards. Um, as it, I, I'm, I'm guessing you're referring to, to tree card, right? Like happen to know the, the team quite well. There's um, quite a few of them. Yeah. Interesting. I was I was not aware that that had become part of the zeitgeist, but I, I will still maybe like give a, a, a minor like you know arms arms length distance or uh, arms length defense of um, what those those guys are doing. Where it's you know yes, like obviously the wooden um, like debit card is like a hook because it's just like oh my god, I've never seen one of these before. Like they can actually make these, but then you know what they're trying to do is to make it so that it again like actually not unlike what what Starling Standard Chartered are doing here. You're putting your money with an institution that then allows you to allocate those funds and to determine how those funds are actually being used by the financial institution to say specifically, like, I want to be able to commit funds to whatever, like, reforestation efforts or, or whatever specific renewable um, initiative you, like, really want to see champion. Whereas, obviously, leaving them with a traditional institution, it just goes into a black box of whatever that institution's priorities are. I was just going to say that I, I apologize. I didn't actually realize there was a wooden card thing, which makes me feel very different sometimes. What I was saying was not at all directed. I thought that was a hypothetical. No, the tree card founders are like, you know, friends of mine. And like when they first, when they first like brought it up, I was like, this is ridiculous. And then I spent a bunch of time with them and I was like, okay, actually like, this is kind of cool. And, and you know, it is cool. I think, I think, uh, to, to think about that in on a broader scale, I think it's really cool because it's doing the heavy lifting of of getting um getting you know this into the mainstream and people talking about it. But like ultimately, a, a bank like Standard Chartered would be really cool to see them actually do something. So like they invest in oil and do a lot of really nasty stuff. You and do you have any thoughts about this before we wrap this up? No, I'm just just to summarize. I mean, I, I agree with what David says. You know, putting the funds into the ESGs or wherever is the right thing. But you know, wooden cards. What, on, on all cards virtual now anyway? How do you have a virtual wooden card? <laughs> I, mean, I don't well, get it. Well, me who leaves my cards in the laundry often. Um, yeah, I don't know if I could do, use one of those. All right, so let's uh, let's wrap it up here. <laughs> well, there you go. A, 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 wood, a, wood, a, wooden, a wooden card would float to the I top guess, in your laundry, maybe. wouldn't it? I don't know. Whatever. Uh, I don't want a moldy card. I don't know if it would be, uh, We're thinking too much about the details. Let's go to the next story. Let's go to the next story. Next story takes us all the way to India, actually. So... Paytm raises 1.1 billion from anchor investors in India's blockbuster IPO. So TechCrunch reported on this. So Pay Paytm has raised 1.104 billion dollars in India's largest ever anchor round as part of its initial public offering, uh, which is also shaping up to be the nation's largest. 
So Paytm is now secured, has now secured nearly half of the 2.45 billion capital it is looking to raise from the IPO. Uh, it's seeking a valuation of over $19 billion in this IPO, backed by big heavy hitters like Alibaba, Berkshire Hathaway, and SoftBank. Paytm was valued at $16 billion in its previous funding round in the second half of 2019. A lot has changed since then. So in the filing last week, Paytm said that it plans to deploy more than $250 million of the total capital it's seeking to raise uh, in the IPO to enter new initiatives and explore acquisition opportunities. Really cool. Um, Sid, I'm going to come to you first. Uh, is this something that you, you've uh, reported on or talked about yet? It's not something I've reported on, but I can say anecdotally, being uh, Indian origin, you know, certainly I can remember when I've been to India, Paytm since um, in the last four or five years has certainly been a sort of discussion point. And I think it's worth, you know, the demonetization efforts, um, which we can debate the actual efficacy of. Um, one thing that did happen was it did help to kickstart um, app-based payments or rather supercharge them. And certainly um, I've heard Paytm use sort of as a, as a verb um, for some time now. Um, and, and, you know, just in India recently, parents using it to buy uh, the Sky and um, TV, stuff like that. So certainly it is a household name and it has been a very efficient one. Um, I think it is at the same time um, interesting to note that it is quite a different space to 2016 when it had that real big boom. There are so many more competitors. Um, the Indian fintech scene is a lot more uh, crowded. And, and I, I do think the order book, from what I understand, was less um, less oversubscribed than say Zomato or, or other Indian um, other Indian tech companies. So I think it is a a really interesting story about how India has become a, a booming fintech market. Um, what happens to Paytm and you know whether it, it lives up to that valuation is, is another question altogether. Yeah, I think I think definitely in markets like India um, are definitely you know, on, on the rise, rising. And one thing that I've seen that we've all seen really in, in this is, is the rise of the super app. Um, so Paytm is a super app, right? Like they allow people to pay for various things. I think WhatsApp pays somewhere. I don't know. I've never used Paytm, but bill payments, you know, like store value, like all sorts of other things are in that. Ewan, do you have any thoughts about uh, the rise of the super app? Well, I mean, the super apps are obviously massive in China and, you know, places like that. Uh, you know, they're, they're almost completely ubiquitous. Um, you know, it's interesting, I guess, in the UK, we don't really have any of those super apps in place. And, I, you know, you wonder why that is. Uh, and I can imagine in sort of places like India, it would probably fit in quite well. You know, it's it's sort of a, trying to co coalesce that, that entire infrastructure. I might... Um... I don't really... Yeah, I don't have anything more beyond that. <laughs> So, I mean, I, I guess the, like the, the term super app is like a little bit of an overloaded concept, right? So I do agree with you that, um, you know, the, the sort of situation in, uh, in in China, right, is like, it, like everyone just understands that like it's, it's going to run through, you know, like the WeChat, like Alibaba kind of universe. Um, but here, what I, when I hear super app, it's more commonly referred to, uh, in, in my mind, uh, referring to like organizations that have, that are looking to sort of become the like central uh like nexus for your entire financial life and so there like i would counter actually that like revolut is the uk's big super app right because they're trying to you know do crypto and investments and banking and payments and um you know like if you're a small but you know even like card issuing like they, they, they're stuffing like a ton of stuff in there but you know they're not they're, they're not like a payment network in the way that these other entities like actually have like sort of command um, at like a network effect and inertia, right? Like it's a kind of separate um, conceit. Whereas 
Like these other ones do also have all of that, but because they have the network effect of being a payment network, um, they like are, they, they just like grow and grow and grow and suck everything into their like uh, uh, gravity well. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, things like Revolut, I guess you could, I agree with you, you could kind of argue they're a super app, but it also feels like they've just kind of thrown everything at the wall to see what's mm. stuck. Whereas, as you say, the, the the network effects out of China, that's a fundamentally different thing. And I don't think that's what Revolut have been I doing. I agree, I agree. And actually, I mean, I, I, like I, I per- personally, and I'll confess, like there's a degree to which I have like a whatever vested interest, but even setting that aside, I am skeptical of the conceit that people actually want to receive all of their financial services in one place. And I think in general, like the trend of the last 20 years has been unbundling so that you can work with really specialist providers and get like a totally best in class experience on each of the things that you care about rather than working with one person who does a mediocre job at everything. So I think I'll, I'll give a bit of a perspective from like a global South. So in the global South, so I live, I live in Kenya right now. And um, there are a few like super apps that are popping up and I'd say even like Facebook is some kind of super app in that like, you know, you can use WhatsApp, like everyone, people think there's parts of Kenya where people think WhatsApp and Facebook are the internet, you know? So um, these, the super apps are mostly like people, they, they come about based off of like convenience, first of all. So like having everything in one place and also data. So internet um, access is, is still quite quite scarce. So having services that like Paytm, for example, and and even in Kenya, like M-Pesa, like, you know, mobile money where people pay rent, they, uh, you know, pay bills, you can you can um, take out loans, you know, borrow money, uh, you know, do, do all sorts of things. That, like having one platform for that is convenient and makes sense because it will work across, you know, everything from a smartphone to feature phones. Um, but yeah, so that, that that's like the the global south take on it. Is I, I think that's probably why we've seen a proliferation of of, of um, super apps in the global south than we have like than we have in in the global north. But um, I'm going to zero in a little bit on this the, the concept of this IPO specifically. Um, so IPOs, big big, you know, everyone's everyone's exit, everyone's trying to IPO, everyone's trying to make a billion dollar, you know in there for that for themselves uh <laughs> um you know there's been a lot of fintech ipos happening and a lot of ex- excitement around that so said i'm going to come to you like th- there's just a lot of great expectations for fintech ipos globally like new bank la- announced last week stripe is has been rumored for so long uh chime as well rumored as well plaid hearsay i don't know um what are your thoughts on the ipo market in fintech like is fintech really are we at a fever pitch right now yeah, I think I think that's a really good term. Yeah, absolutely a fever pitch. Um, really red hot. I think we're at such an interesting kind of inflection point and so many interesting discussions going on around. I mean, sort of if you go to one end, you have sort of crypto discussions and, and companies talking about blockchain and, and, you know, again, merits of that can be debated in the exact way it will be deployed. But certainly when you look at things like stable coins, I think there's some fascinating stuff happening there. But even more generally, the way that payment rails are being um, uprooted or, or, or new alternatives are coming in, um, I think does explain why um, fintech IPOs are at such a completely, uh, yeah, safe, yeah, fever pitch as you say. Um, and I am, yeah, I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. I think investors are going to keep throwing money um, because there is so much demand, and there are, because the exact shape it's going to take isn't fully set yet. And, and you know, there are markets like India which are now getting to that point where investors are really keen to pile in. It's going to keep the momentum going, I think. I, I think your point about, you know, markets like India, I, you know, markets like Brazil, New Bank, they are absolutely killing it over there. 
you know, the the product they've built, the technology they've built in a massively fragmented market. It shows that if you actually just focus on the customer and you really just focus on doing what you're doing properly, you can, you know, you can do amazing things in countries where normally, you know, was it 50 or billion dollars they're looking for an IPO at a new bank? I forget the exact numbers. It's mad. It's crazy. I, I keep coming back to this idea that like there was like a first wave of fintech and we're now like properly in the, like a second wave. Um, and the like first wave of fintech was in the like 90s. And everyone was like, oh, these guys are going to like smash the banks and like everything. And basically, like kind of only PayPal was left standing, really. Like a bunch of other people, you know, turned out okay. But really, there was so much hype and it didn't translate. And I I, I think that, um, I mean, there are like a couple different factors around like what's changed since then. But I think one of them has been that like the fintechs have been able to kind of break through the regulatory wall, where it used to be that like the banks would just refuse to work with you and then you were completely stuck, right? And now banks either actively look to work with you because in things like the US, you've got the Durban Amendment, which really incentivizes them to seek out card interchange. Um, or in the case of Nubank, right, they're able to actually go and get the regulatory permissions that allow them to run the business. Or, and similarly in the UK, you know, Monzo and Starling as, as new entrants. Um, and that has just such dramatic implications for the ability of these businesses to scale and also to monetize. And so they're not these kind of like outsiders scrabbling for, you know, trying to get crumbs from banks that don't really want to work with them. Um, they really are able to claim a much larger piece of the pie, which then means that they're able to command much higher valuations. Yeah, I think that regulatory thing is massive, particularly, you know, I was involved with Anne and Tom setting up the thing that became Starling and Monzo. And that only happened because, you know, the FCA made it possible to open up the new regulatory barriers. And then obviously everything has happened subsequently. Um, you know, I think that the people still don't understand how important that regulatory change has been. Yeah, and I'm, ex I'm excited to see the the impact that, you know, players like Paytm will have on the Indian regulatory market. Um, but actually, so we, we need to move on. But before we move on, um, to learn more about the Indian fintech market, uh, this Friday, actually, um, the, the Insights Show uh, episode 581 will take a deep dive into the, this market. So tune in uh, to join our very own Benjamin Ensor uh, when he's, well, he's going to be joined by experts from this space to look at the opportunities, innovation, and the future of this burgeoning fintech scene in India. Um, so we're going to take a quick pause here while we hear from our sponsors. Uh, we'll be back shortly. If you've been in payments for any length of time, you've seen the number of payment solutions explode. That's great for consumers, but incredibly complex for merchants and developers. That's where Primer comes in. Primer is the world's first automation platform for payments. With Primer, merchants and developers have all the underlying infrastructure and Lego blocks they need to build the best buying experiences for their customers. Learn more and book a demo at Primer.io. Hey folks, I'm David Breer, CEO here at 11FS. I'll be speaking at SASA's Innovation Summit on the 9th of November, where I'll be delivering an exclusive keynote on how banking can unlock innovation in the banking battlefield. The Innovation Summit is your opportunity to be inspired, raise questions and discuss solutions with select banking industry peers and experts on the most pressing issues for you as a leader and decision maker in the industry. This is an exclusive live event aimed at senior executives. The format is intimate and you won't be able to catch this one on demand. So for your chance to address your strategic challenges, unlock the future of your business and make connections, join me at the Innovation Summit hosted by SAS. See you there. And we're back. So next story is about how Crowdcube expands across Europe as EU crowdfunding takes flight. So new EU regulation will come into effect this week, unifying for the first time 
the patchwork of crowdfunding regulations across the continent of Europe. The uniform regulatory framework will unlock huge potential for capital raising led and shaped by retail investors uh, to expand across all European markets. Companies in the UK and EU will now be able to raise up to 13 million euros from retail investors in a single offering of either primary or secondary shares. 8 million euros from UK investors and 5 million euros from European investors. Under these new rules, Crowdcube will be the first platform to operate under the new EU regulations to help more European companies raise capital and drive engagement and advocacy for their communities. So before we dig into this, we heard from Darren Westlake, the CEO of Crowdcube, who told us a little bit more. Historically, unfortunately, regulations for equity crowdfunding in Europe have been really fragmented. But now, from Wednesday, there are now new EU regulations in place which establish a unified legal framework for the way that crowdfunding platforms operate across the EU. And this really opens up huge opportunities for capital raising from retail investors in particular. And that means that whereas previously EU-based private companies, without a prospectus, they were limited to raising only a million euros, they can now raise up to five million euros. And so that means that companies in the UK and the EU, they'll now be able to raise up to a total of 13 million euros from retail investors in a single offering. And that's 8 million euros from UK investors combined with 5 million euros from European investors. Now, from a Crowdcube perspective, since we've known that the regulations are coming in, which has been quite a few months now, we've been working really hard to get our permissions in place. And, and we're just super excited that we're going to be the first platform to operate under the new regulations. So we're finally in a position now to offer founders across Europe the benefits of this form of funding that we've been offering to UK founders now for, for many years. Really exciting. I think Crowdcube is very well known in the UK fintech scene. I think Monzo used them, uh, Free Trade have used them as well. I think Free Trade broke them, if I remember correctly. Um, so this is really just touching on a really great aspect. I want to dive into something with you guys about like the concept of communities and, and, and how this is a, a new funding tool. Um, you and do you have any thoughts? Um, you know, I, well, I suppose, first of all, I think it was Monzo that broke them, didn't they, in their first launch? It's only like 97 seconds, it all sold out and they overloaded the systems. It, it, it was crazy. I think, you know, for, for me, just the ability for people outside the UK to benefit from this. So, you know, as you observe, Monzo and Free Trade and a whole bunch of other people have really benefited from this crowdfunding capability to be able to make it available to people across Europe. You know, we talk about the EU and a single market and so on and so forth. But as Darren pointed out, you know, the regulations are really fragmented. So I, I think that it'll probably help that European scene to kick off. You know, we've been lucky in London, um, good regulations, single market, uh, single sort of funding capabilities. That's not been there in Europe. So hopefully this will help those guys drive forward. And yeah, Crowdcube is going to, they're going to become the only platform with pan-European, like the only platform with pan-European and UK regulatory approval. Sid, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I must admit crowdfunding is something I covered a lot, although, you know, even from a couple of conversations we're having this week, um, this sort of discussion has been coming up and people have been, you know, excited about this. I think it is obviously exciting news and we are in an age in which retail money is uh, moving around a lot more. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I think fundamentally it is just healthy that we are seeing this harmonization, which which seems to be, um, as you were saying, you know, we, we've been talking about single markets for a long time, but um, this has been a long time coming. David, do you have any thoughts about the the crowdfunding space? Would you would you ever have considered crowdfunding for Griffin at all, or or uh, or have you participated in crowdfunding rounds? 
I'm actually not sure if I have participated in crowdfunding rounds. Um, <laughs> like, to, to genuinely not sure. In terms of whether we thought about it for Griffin, um, we, we did think about it for Griffin. And the, the sort of tricky thing with crowdfunding is that it really is um, best for consumer-facing businesses where, you know, the, the retail investor understands and, and sort of has an, a degree of accessibility around the sort of product. And so the stuff that, I mean, I, I as, as a founder, like, do I find crowdfunding particularly useful for me or sort of um, all that appealing? Not necessarily, but as a consumer, I think it's fantastic because it really allows the like market to tell companies what it wants and to fund the development. Um, like, you know, I, I think like customer funded development is the best possible kind of development. And in, you know, B2B businesses, which is, is what we are, you know, that, that comes a little bit differently in the forms of, you know, c- contracts and revenue agreements for people who are like, I want that. I will pay you for it and then you will build it and you will deliver it in like a quarter or two. Um, but I think, um, yeah, I, I really, I think crowdfunding is just fantastic. And I think in particular, you know, there's kind of that like limited window in time where we thought like ICOs were going to be the future of crowdfunding where, you know, people could could put their money into the, the thing and, and now the sort of whatever regulations around that have made clear that that's not going to be the case for, for some time. So I'm, I'm really happy to see this, uh, like that there's a sort of more, more, I guess, well-trod structured framework around this that also has built into it a lot of the sort of investor protections that you really want to see where like, you know, entities like Crowdcube themselves are regulated. They will do due diligence on the companies that are raising on the platform so that, you know, it's very difficult at the very least to kind of like run a large scale scam and, and take everyone's money. That's great. Well, I, I didn't. I didn't know that uh, they did. You know, in depth um, due diligence on on the, st- the startups. That's really cool because I think you know, like I've I've participated in a few crowdfunding rounds myself, and and I'm going to say something really controversial. I regret it because it, I just yeeted away money that like I'm like I <laughs> I could I, I'm not going to see it for what a decade. When is Monzo or Free Trade gonna IPO? Like when am I going to see this? So I I think. Maybe also maybe Crowdcube can do a little bit more work around. Um, it'd be cool to see them do some work around like creating like angel networks maybe or just with people who are because I, I just did it without thinking. This is like years ago. So, yeah. But there's there's isn't there increasingly sort of secondary markets appearing? Um, you know, it's a standard problem with any any startup, right? If you if you get founder shares, you can be sitting on them for, for a decade or more. Uh, and you know that ability to you know I've only recently just for example got got nutmeg paid out. Um, you know it's it's uh, the ability to to secondary trade this I think will be also critical, uh, and that requires a much deeper market and much deeper pockets and people willing to come in and, and buy at the higher prices. So if if Crowdcube if this can lead to that in some way shape or form, I think that will be brilliant for founders and people like Wera who are buying stuff and then regretting it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I, so I think like uh, just on that like. I mean, you have companies like Carta that are really spinning up secondary markets at like a wholesale basis and, and like with good reason, right? Because they're serving as the cap table of record for a, just a ton of companies. But what's interesting about Crowdcube and, and a lot of these crowd funders is that um, I don't want to say they provide detailed due diligence, but they do like work with the companies on the platform because there's quite a bit of detail around how the shares get issued. And so generally the sort of share structure needs to be well understood by Crowdcube in order for them to legally be able to to do that. And so one of the ways that that comes about is that like Crowdcube will basically set up, I'm I'm using the term like trust, like loosely, it's not a like literal trust, but they'll set up this kind of like trust entity, right? That like the shares are are held by and then like that kind of maps to the individual um, 
like crowdfunders. And what's cool about that is like you could very easily envision them spinning up a secondary market just on that, right? Where some mm-hmm. people are like, okay, like I'm ready to cash out. Other people are like, I'd like to double down. And you could, you know, like Crowdcube has the facility to like spin that up. It wouldn't surprise me at all if that's on their product roadmap at some point. That's really cool. I think also like the data from like secondary markets can be so useful uh, to to various analysts, like, you know, who are looking at pre-IPOs and and trying to to price an IPO if, if and when that ever happens or even acquisitions. Like that's data that like Crowdcube could sell. Uh, so look at us. We are we are Crowdcube's product uh, strategy workshop right here. <laughs> You're welcome, Crowdcube. Um, be expecting a check in the mail in the form of hard cash, not shares. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next story. Um, so Plaid reported that uh, fintech adoption helps break money taboo. Uh, so the fintech effect is what Plaid's calling their 2021 annual report, uh, found that fintech apps and services have played a key role during the pandemic as a force for good, enabling UK users to save money and time uh, and understand their finances better. So this has led to a greater confidence with finance among 77% of fintech users. Uh, crucially, it has also helped make people's finances more social, breaking the long-held taboo of discussing money. So just to get dive into these numbers, so love the number, 69% of UK respondents reported that digital tools have helped them make money more social, with 65% more comfortable discussing finances as a result of the technology. Uh, for 44% of financial tools and apps uh, have become a subject of dinner table discussions in the last six months. I told, I think I would even say like more than 44%, um, anecdotally. Uh, but as well as helping encourage financial discussions, fintech use has helped boost the well-being of UK consumers. So 49% admit that they now feel more in control of their finances since using fintech, while 36% said that f- fintech has helped them reduce the fear and financial stress in their lives. So that's really cool. Um, we're going to hear, we heard from Keith Gross, the head of international at Plaid, uh, and told us a little bit more. Hi, everyone. I'm Keith Gross of Plaid. Our latest FinTech Effect report found that more people are now using digital finance tools than most other mainstream technologies, including social media and streaming video. It's pretty incredible that FinTech is now more popular than watching Netflix, but it's true. In fact, the use of FinTech for things like payments, banking, and investment is now second only to internet in terms of adoption by consumers. And a lot of that growth has happened over just the last few years. Sometimes it can feel like headlines are dominated in fintech by things like funding, valuations, and acquisition news. But it's important to remember that what's at the heart of fintech's mission is making things better for consumers and helping people manage their everyday financial lives in a better and healthier way. Our survey showed that people gravitate to fintech for convenience and ease of use. But it's these strong benefits and outcomes saving time, saving money, having more visibility and confidence about your financial life that's really cementing fintech at the heart of people's lives. And so while our report shows that fintech has reached mass adoption, it's important to note that we, as an industry, are still just scratching the surface in many ways. The true transformation of finance is just beginning, and fintech is helping consumers to lead the way. Really cool to see that uh, financial, like finance is becoming more, like financial services even have helped uh, with people's financial health and and in 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 the in our communities as well. Talking more about it, um, David, do you have any thoughts about this report uh, or in fintech for good? Gosh, I I don't know that I have any like particularly sophisticated um, opinions about this. Uh, I I mean I I definitely do think that 
the most recent wave of fintech companies has been much more like consumer friendly and is focused on accessibility and and that in and of itself just like the sort of tone that um uh companies take in designing their products and their experiences i think make people feel like it's not something arcane and so it is something that they can like talk about and, and be social with and um, you know, a, a lot of these like, you know, have really embedded social components. I, I think it's like obviously super relevant for um, Plaid, who I, I believe like really early on were powering a ton of Venmo's stuff. And so like, you know, their, their, their heart, their root really is at like enabling these kind of like more s- social finance uh, uh, applications. But I'm, I'm, um, <laughs> I'm like an infrastructure guy at heart. I don't know. I've got like my, my like uh, nerdy consumer opinions, but they're not that sophisticated. That's fair. I think this is a this is a chill chat among homies, so it's okay. Sid, do you <laughs> Sid, do you have any what has what good has tech done or fintech apps in your life or even your family? Yeah, no, actually, I'm thinking as anecdotally, it does feel like a more than fifty percent um, change sort of discussions about it, family table, uh, family dinner table discussions, and you know, living at home with parents means that it's mainly the same discussions, but talking about um, using apps for investing or even actually, you know, for banking apps, you know, looking at, you know, month expenditure. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, in our case, it's something that I wouldn't talk about before, but certainly something we've discussed more. And I wonder if part of that is obviously the pandemic effect and thinking more about money and sort of a side effect of that beyond fintech. But certainly, um, I think that is a positive side to fintech, which is nice to hear about. Um, and, and obviously there are what you define as fintech or which specific area, if you're looking at, for example, buy now, pay later, there, there are obviously more discussions around um, credit um, credit checks and things like that. You know, people who've ended up caught up in systems which aren't necessarily um, sufficiently um, good at ensuring that they shouldn't be buying things um, may have a different opinion. But I think certainly, you know, some of the open banking stuff and, and some of the plugins we've seen have been really healthy. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's genuinely good. I, I totally agree. You and you've worked in, in fintech for a while. Um, so you're basically a saint now. I mean, include because fintech is for good, right? Uh, how, <laughs> how have you seen this this change over time? Have you because you've you've had the privileged position of kind of like seeing the trends over time? What, what do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think first off, you know, my sophisticated opinion is I love fintech, but I can't believe that it's as 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 powerful as Squid Games. Um, so, you know, on the Netflix side, you know, I, I do think actually the thing for me, I think, has been really important over the last five, 10, 10 years, whatever it's been, has actually just been the transparency. So, you know, for example, I remember when Monzo first launched and there was a space of stories about people getting their cards stolen. And actually they were able to track uh, some guy, you know, particularly in the early days, he, he, he realized his card had been stolen because the phone pinged. And actually, he, you know, he realized on the map, actually it's somewhere around the corner and he you know, ran off and grabbed the guy and called him in the shop spending the money. Uh, you know, I think that's that's a stupid example, but I think it's a good example of transparency. You know, people suddenly have a real-time awareness of what's going on in their life. You know, banking banking is great, but it's backward-looking and it's historically been slow. Fintech is, it's real-time. Um, I think increasingly you're seeing apps that are forward-looking, helping people plan for the future. Uh, and just being aware of what's happening now, uh, people can show it. And actually, I think once you start to see your money in real time and actually see it in life, you can start talking about it in ways of share. You know, people don't share their salaries and they probably don't share what how much money they've got and so on and so forth. But actually, it's a conversation that I think will come in and people will start to become more comfortable. You know, people just, they know how much they have. They also know how much they don't have. And I think that's probably where you're going to see the next wave of, right, how do people start saving properly? 
which maybe, you know, you've got the Robin Hoods of this world and historically the nutmegs of the world. You know, we kind of talk about Crowdcube investing. Maybe that's what Standard Chartered would do with Shoal. It's, it's, it's that wave of people able to plan for the future. You're now aware of it. And I think that's a, that's a massive win. That's super powerful, yeah. And like, I yeah, anecdotally as well. Like, I I think I'm, I've been in fin- fintech for a while as well. But like, I, I only recently have I started to like feel financially healthy, and that like I'm actually having these conversations with my friends, and I'm able to understand my financial like footprint a little bit better. Um, thank you to technology for that. Um, it wasn't the scary Terminator esque situation that we all thought it would be. <laughs> all right. Um, so let's move on to um, the next segment, which is stories we did not have time to cover. So uh, for, for this part, this is the part of the show where we quickly round up some of the stories from this for the last week that we didn't have time to cover, but still deserve a shout out. Ewan, uh, do you want to get it started? So I guess to start off with, uh, Robin Hood says that millions of customers' names and email addresses have been taken in a data breach. Uh, They confirmed that they were hacked last week, and I believe more than 5 million email addresses and 2 million customer names were taken, as well as a much smaller set of uh, customer-specific data. Uh, The company said that in a blog post uh, that a malicious hacker had socially engineered a customer service rep over the phone at the beginning of November, which allowed them to get access to uh, customer support systems. So they were able to tame customer number, customer names, email addresses, but also a bunch of details for an additional 310 customers, which I think were things like their full names, their date of birth, their zip code, and so on and so forth. And I think there was also 10 additional customers who had more extensive customer details taken, although Robin Hood say that no social security numbers were taken. I think for me, the lesson here really is that systems generally don't get hacked. People get hacked. I think that if you look at most systems, they're secure from a from an infrastructure perspective. People are putting encryption in place. They've got obviously decent firewalls. Uh, network accesses are controlled. But what's not controlled is somebody phoning up and pretending to be someone else. Uh, and customer service reps, it's a hard job. And if you want to hack a system, you hack the customer service rep. You don't hack the infrastructure. Now, you might get less data out, you know, uh, but the data you will get, as those 310 customers have shown, uh, is much greater fidelity. Uh, and those people can probably be targeted. And that's that's a key win. People get hacked, not systems. Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, one of the things that stands out to me about this is like, th- there are certain elements where I'm like, okay, this is actually like a feature, not a bug. So the fact that they're able to say, like after this event occurred, these specific customers had these pieces of data taken means that they have like decent kind of ability to audit what individual members of their team are doing. So that's great from like a systems and controls perspective. What strikes me as like insane is the conceit that basically like someone called, was able to get a customer service rep to like probably hand over their password and then was able to download like through a normal customer service reps access, like the entire list of customers. Like that is crazy because no customer service rep should have the ability to do that. Like that is not a, it's not a thing that a customer service rep should be able to do. Um, and that just like, do you know what, H- having worked in, in like customer ops, I, I totally understand it's like customer servicing tools are just so often left behind or just like, you know, not really focused on too heavily. So it makes sense to me. Yeah. But it's totally insane that that, that would happen. Um, but, uh, I hope that person like I just I, is, I, I try to I try to think about it and I'm like where is the button that says download all customer data yeah. right like 
Yeah. Ugh, let's not think about it too much. Let's uh, let's dive into the next story. Um, so new Neobank monument readies for launch after regulator lifts restrictions. This is from Altify. So in October 2020, monument was granted authorization with restriction uh, by the FCA and the PRA to begin acting as a fully fledged bank with restrictions usually being removed following the completion of a larger capital raise. Uh, so to date, it has raised 60 million pounds of capital. Nearly one year on, it's set to go fully live in the market. So at launch, the bank is offering clients buy to let and bridging loans to support experienced and busy landlords who manage uh, and grow their portfolios. Uh, clients will also be able to borrow up to three million pounds for buy to let property investments uh, supported by specialist relationship managers. Uh, so it says the target market is professionals, entrepreneurs, property investors, and will operate uh, as a deposit-taking institution with competitive savings products uh, while offering property investment loans to clients. This is one of those like niche fintech neo-banking offerings that I think fintech has allowed has enabled to happen. So shout out to the FCA and the PRA for for um, being uh, forward-thinking enough to 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 bring this into market. You and next story. Square makes its cash app available for teen use. So Square is now allowing all teenagers to use Cash App after restricting it for adults until now. Those aged 13 to 17 will need permission from a parent or guardian to use the app, however. The parents uh, will have access to their transaction reports, including transfers, and they can shut down a teen's account and cash card at any time. Under-18s will be locked out of some parts of the app too. They won't, for example, be able to trade Bitcoin or access the investing, borrow, check deposit and paper money and cross-border payments features. They also can't use their cash card at certain businesses either, including bars, cars, car rental places, or hotels. Um, you know, I think to the earlier conversation about, you know, what has fintech done for me? This is a good example of actually, you know, it's now possible for banks and fintechs to make propositions available to a much wider use case, in this case, teenagers. You know, as a parent of, you know, three kids, it's it's great to be able to know you're in control of their money and also to know that they're in control, but you can have an oversight. That's great. I, I hope that they're being safe because, um, you know, bullying is, is big. And then I've heard stories about like people bullying people and being harassed via the comments of like cash app uh, transactions and all that. So I hope they're being thoughtful about it. Um, all right. So let's bring everyone back to the final story. So this is the and finally story. So and finally, Microsoft's own metaverse is coming and it will have PowerPoint. No word on Clippy yet, but uh, so if you're worried that the metaverse will all be will be all fun and games, fear not. Microsoft is taking its own stab at the idea and will have PowerPoint and Excel to create a more corporate version of the metaverse. I have a friend that just started working at Microsoft. I don't know how I'm going to have a straight face around her. Um, the first offering a version uh, of Microsoft Teams chat and conferencing program uh, that features digital avatars is testing now and will be available uh, in the first half of 2022. Customers will be able to share office files and features like PowerPoint decks in the virtual world. Uh, the new Teams feature will let businesses create immersive spaces where workers can meet. Uh, the technology also uses Microsoft software announced earlier uh, this year called Mesh that enables augmented reality and virtual reality experiences across a variety of goggles, including Microsoft's own HoloLens. Um, I've heard good things about HoloLens. Uh, so customers who lack a device capable of displaying 3D images can experience the content and avatars in 2D. Ah, oh, Microsoft Metaverse. Anyone have any thoughts? Well, I guess it's the ultimate super app, right? Oh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you know, from a personal perspective, one of my favorite books ever was Ready Player One. Uh, and I guess, you know, Mark Zuck is, uh, is of the same thing. It's, in theory, it's great. In reality, mm, 
I don't know. Yeah, I I mean, I'm, I'm like a whatever. We, work, we all work in technology. Like, we're all, you know, deep futurists at heart. But I really just don't see this being the way that things go. Like, it just feels cringe and and dumb. Um, I did get, like, a really interesting take on Twitter um, from, uh, I, I think it was from this guy, Sean Puri, who was saying that, like, a, di- a slightly different way of thinking about the metaverse, ignoring Zuck's preferred definition, is, like, thinking about a world in which what happens in the digital space is actually, like, more important to you than what happens in real space, like, where your life is predominantly in the digital space. And he's like, and this is not an instant thing. This is just, like, what has been happening to us now for, like, 20 years. And I find that kind of interesting. Um, yeah, I was going to say, um, my background is partially digital sociology, uh, and I wish it wasn't sometimes when I hear about metaverse and stuff <laughs> like that, because it makes me put my head in my hands. Uh, and one of my favorite books is um, um, Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, uh, which metaverse comes from. And yes, <laughs> it's great. And I, I, I remember there's a, there's a part early on where they're having, uh, where there's like clear disparity between people on sort of how much money they put into um, into their avatars, I think, if I remember rightly. And sort of you can get like a pre-built one, which is like quite blocky, or you can like the really custom end ones, which I'm glad Microsoft seems to be um, perhaps accidentally following that route, the 2D, 3D split. But um, I, I, I don't know. I feel like, I, 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 I really like what you're saying, David, that kind of shift. I think we've been in this kind of um, digital, what Nathan Jurgensen calls digital dualism, not digital dualism, augmented reality rather. We've moved away from that world of like a, a clear split if there ever was one and it has increasingly shifted towards this place where we are um, having that digital world playing a greater role i'm not sure whether some kind of corporate second life is necessarily going to be the space it goes next though please no i i went to university in the 2010s and like second life was my life like we like had classes in second life. like everyone's talking about metaverse now i'm like oh i've been there we did it already um but like i you know what i want to see in the micro metaverse micro meta softverse whatever um, I really want to see the Steve Steve Ballmer dancing. Have you guys seen the video of Steve Ballmer dancing at the 90, Windows 95 launch party? I would buy an NFT of that. I'm not even joking. I will sell everything I own to own that clip. Oh, so great. Uh, but where's Clippy? Who has to issue that for that? Is that like Microsoft or Steve himself? Yeah. Jeez, who's going to mint that for me? Um, anyone else have any other thoughts on this story? <laughs> any thoughts on Clippy? I was going to say, I, I genuinely forgot that Clippy had actually existed until you brought it up, which I'm, I'm not sure is, that's a good thing. Is it far enough back now that it's sort of antique? Maybe. I mean, so, you know, when, when this news story came up at 11 Fest, one of the first stories, like one of the first questions we people were asking was like, what about Clippy? Is Clippy going to be there? Uh, like, I would actually love to have a VR Clippy that like reminds me to send that email or like will be like, hey, that PowerPoint's off center. You know, it'd be kind of kind of cool to have a little tiny Clippy Pokemon type thing. Um, by yeah, side. Clippy was framed. <laughs> you know, Cliff, Clippy deserves justice. I think Clippy died too early. But on that note, let's uh, let's wrap the show. I think uh, I, I don't want to get emotional about Clippy. Um, so <laughs> let's wrap the show. So thank you so much to all our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, David? Um, probably best to find me uh, on our website, I guess, which is uh, griffin.sh. Awesome. Sid, where can we find out more about you? Uh, you can probably find me best on Twitter, where I'm SBR13. Thank you very much. Uh, and Ewan? Uh, I'm going to go old school, and probably the best thing is drop me an email, ewan at 11fs.com. 
get ready for the hordes of people talking to you about uh yeah i've i've, I've got my spam filter set on so nobody can actually get through it's fine <laughs> uh so his phone number is plus four four i'm kidding um what's the phone <laughs> <laughs> So as for me, you can find me on the Twitter website slash app slash metaverse when it becomes one, uh, not Guerra. Uh, and you can also find me at aloneinfest.com. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can join us in the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.